Shalom, this is Rabbi John Spira-Savet. I'm from Temple Beth Abraham in Nashua, New Hampshire, and this is my very first ever podcast. If you find this interesting, and particularly if you found this not through the congregation, I hope you'll drop me a note. You can find me on the web at rabbijohn.com, and I'd love to know what you think of this particular podcast. My topic is what we've called in America over the past generation the December Dilemma, all of the things which come up when we think about the fact that Hanukkah comes at the time of the year when our neighbors are celebrating Christmas. But I don't want to talk about it really in contemporary terms, at least not at first. The fact is that the December Dilemma was built into Hanukkah from the very beginning of the story, back in the 2nd century BCE, when the events of Hanukkah that we celebrate and commemorate first took place. My hope is that we can learn a thing or two by thinking about the December dilemma from a historical perspective, and then fast forward a bit to ourselves and ask the question, how is what happened then just like, or very much like, what's happening today? What is Hanukkah? We usually tell the story of Hanukkah as almost a children's story, and it's a story we do tell to children. The story of an evil king persecuting a small minority. It reminds us of Pharaoh or of Haman. We focus on the decrees of King Antiochus, the outlawing of Torah study and of the practice of circumcision of baby boys, the incident where a Jewish man was made to sacrifice a pig, the desecration of the temple with an idol, and then, of course, the miraculous military victory by the Maccabees against the larger Hellenistic army, and the miracle of the small cruise of oil, which was only enough to burn for a day but somehow lasted for eight days. But there is a way of telling the story of Hanukkah that makes it, I think, even more interesting, and one that really captures the December dilemma. And that is to look at Hanukkah as really the flashpoint, one incident, or a few years, in the longer struggle by Jews living in a world suddenly dominated by an empire, with a culture that was influencing the whole world that they were a part of, in a new way, for the first time. Not all of the conflict which Jews experienced was violence, like the conflict between Judah Maccabee and King Antiochus. And Jews did not only respond by fighting, there were many, many responses. And in the end, Jews came to be profoundly shaped by that world, that Hellenistic world they were living in. So I want to tell the story from that point of view. It makes Hanukkah, if anything, even more contemporary, and then we can think about whether there are any lessons to learn as we live here in America, an empire, if you will, very much like the Hellenists of ancient times. The story of Hanukkah begins with Alexander the Great. In the year 336 BCE, he became the king of Macedonia and embarked on a series of military expeditions, which eventually made him the empire of not only the Mediterranean, but the Middle East. He was not only a great military leader, but he was a person of culture, a student of the philosopher Aristotle. Over the few years after he became king, and his conquests in the Mediterranean led him to conquer the land of Israel and Jerusalem in the year 332 BCE. There is a story which is told, and we don't have evidence from just that time, that this is what happened when he conquered Jerusalem, that he came to make an offering of sacrifice with respect at the Beit HaMikdash, the temple in Jerusalem that he gave honor to the high priest of the Jews there, and that he offered to let the Jews live according to our ancient laws, and that he would do so even if they joined his army and went on further conquests with him into the rest of the Near East.
That was Alexander. Within a decade or so after he took Jerusalem, he was dead, and his empire was divided into two parts between two of his military leaders, Ptolemy and Seleucus. They divided the empire, and it became centered in two different places, one center in Egypt and one center in Syria. And for the Jews, it meant that living in Eretz Yisrael, in the land of Israel, was going back to something which is as old as biblical times, being on the front lines of a conflict, as the two centers in Syria and in Egypt grappled for control of the whole. Israel, as always, was a crossroads and a place of a border region, a place where the armies used to fight with each other. Initially, the land of Israel was part of the Ptolemaic Empire, the empire centered in Egypt. In the city of Alexandria, Egypt, on the coast right on the Mediterranean, a new city named, of course, for Alexander the Great. The first century of Jewish life under Hellenistic rule was nothing like the story of Hanukkah. In fact, we have a Jewish book that, like the Book of Maccabees, was written down in Greek and dates to about the same time, to the second century BCE. It's a remarkable book called The Letter of Aristeas to Philocrates. It doesn't sound at all like the title of a Jewish book, but it is. And it's a legend which purports to tell the story of how the Torah came to be translated into Greek. And indeed, in the 200s BCE, the Torah was translated into Greek, a translation which has come to be known as the Septuagint, the translation of the 70s. The Letter of Aristeas purports to tell how the king, based in Egypt, King Ptolemy, while he was assembling his famous library that would have all of the wisdom and the wise books throughout the world, came to be aware that there was one book which he didn't have, and which he was told by his advisors had a great deal of wisdom in it, and that book, of course, was the Torah. So the king decided to send off for a delegation from Jerusalem, which was also part of his empire, and he wrote to the high priest to ask him to send a delegation of scholars who would come to Alexandria and translate the Torah into Greek. It's a friendly start to the story, and of course it contrasts to the tale of King Antiochus in the Hanukkah story, who forbid the Jews from studying Torah at all. But the king wasn't content simply to have a delegation who would translate the Torah into Greek. When they arrived, he threw them a week-long banquet. And not just a banquet, but a kosher banquet. He researched the dietary laws and made sure that everything was according to the rules that the guests from Jerusalem would be allowed to eat. And when they arrived, he did not immediately send them off to the work of translating the Torah, but he entertained them for seven nights. And each night he would ask a group of the scholars to answer what were a series of philosophical questions. As you read through the story, you would recognize immediately the king's questions as the sort of things you would find in perhaps the dialogues of Plato. And each sage from Jerusalem would answer in a way that would stack up against all of the great philosophers from Greece. In the course of the telling of this banquet and the philosophical discussions, the letter of Aristeas also gives a very interesting interpretation of the laws of Kashrut, a rationalistic, a philosophical interpretation of Kashrut. So, for instance, the Jews at that time interpret the requirement of a split hoof in chewing the cud for a kosher animal as a metaphor indicating discernment, understanding, chewing on something in order to understand it the best. And most of the book is taken up with a description of the preparations for this banquet and set of banquets and how it occurred, and only a very small bit at the end describes the retreat of the 70 scholars to translate the Torah into Greek.
This story is a fiction, but it captures many aspects of what it was like to live as a Jew under Hellenistic rule initially, particularly in Alexandria in Egypt, which was a bit different, perhaps, than living in the land of Israel. But we can understand it as part of a larger story of the interaction of Hellenism and the Jews. First of all, from the story, there's obviously a tone of respect. And the Hellenistic rulers initially were, for the most part, tolerant rulers who allowed each nation that they conquered to live in some sense according to their culture and their inheritance. We see, as I've mentioned, that there is a philosophical interpretation of Judaism. The way that Jewish scholars began to think about the Torah was influenced by the Greek ideas which they came into contact with. The book itself was written in Greek, just as the Torah was being translated into Greek. And the Greek language became a part of Jewish life. There was a vernacular throughout the Mediterranean and the empires that Alexander had conquered called the Koin, and it influenced Jewish life, it crept into Hebrew, and it was its own language which Jews had to learn in order to participate in commerce and culture in the empire. In the land of Israel, the Greeks renamed some of the cities which they conquered, and they built new cities as well. And there was a great mixing of peoples from all parts of the empire, especially in the big cities, especially in places like Alexandria, especially in places along the Mediterranean coast, and in Jerusalem as well. The other thing which we might notice, not from this story, but from other things that we know, that came from the Greeks into Jewish life was the gymnasium and athletic competitions that the, that the ancient Greeks are so famous for, the Greek ideal of physical beauty. And Greek ideas not only translated the Torah, but influenced some of the Jewish writings, and there are Jewish books of wisdom which are written in Greek. That really is part of the important backdrop to the story of Hanukkah, because the events of Hanukkah were very much a deviation. In the year 200 BCE, the Seleucids, the Syrian Greeks as we call them, conquered the land of Israel. But it didn't really signify much of a change, not yet. It wasn't another 30 years or so until the events we know as Hanukkah began to take place, when a new king took the throne of the Seleucid Empire, named Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes is a Greek word meaning God made manifest. But again, the story isn't just the simple children's story that we usually think about. We have the book of 1 Maccabees, which was again a Jewish-Greek book, written by Jews loyal to the Maccabees after the revolt. And it describes the existence of conflict within the Jewish community, in Israel and in Jerusalem. There were a group of people known as Hellenizers, Jews who were willing to live entirely according to Greek ways. And it was they who went to King Antiochus, and they offered to do that. They offered to convert the Jewish community to Hellenistic ways. And according to this version of the events of Hanukkah, it wasn't until some of the Jews approached Antiochus that the king decided to take action in the land of Israel. We have other writings from that time that make it clear that there was infighting and corruption among the priests who oversaw the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. Some of it was over money, some of it was over favor of the rulers, the Greek rulers, and some was over how much Hellenistic flavor to let into temple worship. The other factor in the Hanukkah story is the fact that King Antiochus was crazy. But the family of Matityahu, Mattathias, and Judah the Maccabee were devoted and loyal. They were known as Hasidim, as pious, as loyal Jews. And so ensued the war, which we're so familiar with from the story of Hanukkah. 
Even the celebration at the end of the war, which we have come to call Hanukkah, has raised some scholarly questions. The holiday takes place on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, but that of course reminds us of other holidays we know from the ancient world, like the Roman Saturnalia, which took place on the 25th of the last month in the solar calendar, right around the time of the winter solstice. Some have looked at the Christmas holiday of December 25th and noted that it's key to the Roman holiday of Sol Invictus, the victory of the invincible sun against the darkness at the darkest, at the darkest time of the year. And people have wondered whether, in fact, the 25th of Kislev is also somehow a way of being attached to a pagan holiday, a Hellenistic holiday, which might have celebrated the solstice as well. We don't have any specific evidence that there was a Hellenistic or a pagan holiday being celebrated on the 25th before the new year in Eretz Israel, but we do know there was such a holiday in Greece itself in the second century. But isn't it interesting if the very selection of the day is somehow a combination, a combination of the pagan solstice and then the eight-day holiday based on Sukkot, which had been missed when the temple was defiled and it couldn't be celebrated as a pilgrimage, and Sukkot, a reminder of the dedication of Solomon's temple on Sukkot. Maybe the very date of Hanukkah itself, and the eight days, like the Roman holiday, which we know of later, maybe Hanukkah itself is a combination of a Jewish holiday and the holiday of the surrounding world somehow merged into one. If we continue the story in its time, if we go past the rededication of the temple, we see that it's not so simple as the Maccabees winning a war and ruling justly and creating freedom for the Jews in the land of Israel. The Maccabees and their dynasty also became Hellenized after a while. From names like Judah and Jonathan, their leaders at the beginning, we see rulers among the Maccabees who began to take Greek names. They called themselves kings, even though they didn't have any descent from King David. And they made themselves king in the style of all the other groups of the region. And they became entangled in politics with the rising Roman Empire to the west. But more than just their looking like other rulers of the Hellenistic world, we can see that the wider influence of Hellenism on Jewish culture has left more than a few positive effects, things that date back to this time and continued for centuries afterwards. Some of the things that we think of now as at the center of Judaism date from the Hellenistic time. The idea of reason in Judaism, using the mind to understand our sacred texts. The joy of arguing and debate, isn't that what the Talmud is filled with? And isn't that really the same thing as the dialogues of Plato and Socrates? So we might ask, was Hellenism good or bad for the Jews? Which part of that relationship should we focus on? Should it be the revolt, as we usually do in Hanukkah, the negative part of the relationship? Or might we also take some time to think about things like the translation of the Torah into the universal language of humanity? Of course, at Hanukkah, we should probably think about all of these things. When we think back on the wider historical context for Hanukkah, we realize that what we experience today around Hanukkah is not new at all. The relationship of Hanukkah to Christmas, the way Christmas giving has shaped Hanukkah customs, well, it's always been there, the same as the link between Hanukkah and the winter solstice celebrations. We feel as Jews most surrounded by other people's songs and symbols in our streets of our cities at this time of year. 
But so did the Jews of Jerusalem in the land of Israel, starting 2,300 years ago, if not more, when the first Hellenistic rulers arrived. We live in America, in a culture which dominates the world through our language and other parts of our culture. We play the same role, America plays the same role, as the Hellenistic Empire did back for our ancestors in the early days of Hanukkah. One of my favorite Hanukkiyot, one of my favorite menorahs, is one in where each of the places where we put the candles is a statue of liberty, and the Hanukkah candle goes into the torch. It's a wonderful emblem of ways in which American Jews have tried to make Hanukkah somehow our own story. To realize that even though America is something we're sometimes at odds with, that America also is an expression of things that are very, very Jewish. And the liberty and that Statue of Liberty is itself a Jewish idea. And ideas and values flow back and forth between the Jews and the wider cultures, the universal cultures in which we find ourselves. We can find all kinds of different meanings in Hanukkah today. Military victory against all odds, which reminds us of the contemporary state of Israel. The struggle for religious freedom against the majority which would deny it. That's what we think of in America. And for me, Hanukkah will be the most interesting when I think about it as a reflection of the challenges of remaining distinct and carrying on a sacred covenant even while we become included in and grow from our surrounding culture. If we think about it this way, then Hanukkah is very much an adult story and much worth discussing around the menorah this year. Chag Urim Sameach, a joyous festival of lights.